Sometimes, sometimes the world needs God to raise up a new leader. Sometimes God's people need him to raise up a new leader. And in the year 640 B.C., somewhere around there, it was one of those times. It's a time after God's people had divided into two separate nations. This map reflects something of that. You'd see in blue the kingdom of Israel and a star representing Samaria, the kingdom, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. So after Kings David and Solomon, God's people divided two separate nations with their own opinions about how God ought to be worshipped. And in the south, in the kind of pink color, was the kingdom of Judah with its capital, Jerusalem. By the time the book of Zephaniah is written, Israel has been conquered by the Assyrian army and taken into exile. And God's people living in Judah, the southern kingdom, are very complacent. They're thinking, you know what? Our northern neighbors must have gotten God's worship wrong. God punished them by allowing them to be conquered and spread among the nations. But we, we're getting it right. Well, in fact, they weren't getting it right. Just like their northern neighbors in Israel, God's people from Judah have begun to worship many other gods alongside him, have begun, have begun to send a signal to the world that God is just one more option on the religious menu. Like Judah was rolling up to McDonald's and trying to figure out whether today they wanted the Mac this or the Mac that or the Mac God. It just kind of didn't matter. He's just one more choice. That's, that's not the signal that God intends his people to send the world. So God raises up a leader. In this case, he raised up a leader named Zephaniah. We don't know too much about him. We know his father's name was Cushi, which means he's from Ethiopia. Zephaniah is the new leader God has raised up. And God says to Zephaniah, Zephaniah, the nations need to hear that I'm not just one more option on the religious menu. And Zephaniah, my people have forgotten this, and they need to hear it too. So today we'll hear part of God's message to our world and to us through this prophet, Zephaniah. Caleb's going to read for us. The scripture reading this morning is Selections from Zephaniah. From chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. 
In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed, for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. And from chapter 3, beginning at verse 9. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Well, here's a truth for us. We become like what we love. It's just true about being a human being. You become like what you love. That can be beautiful and life-giving, or it can be something destructive that brings more death into our world. So uh, just to test this concept, I decided this week that I would uh, just go to my news feed and see what were some of the top stories of the week. Well, you could imagine that one of them had to do with Halloween, right? That's why I'm wearing the jelly bean tie this morning. Um, you become like what you love. And, and so if you grew up with happy memories of Halloween, you probably will become that neighbor who goes the extra mile at this time of year to help kids and families in your neighborhood have some happy memories and fun stories to tell. Well, one of the other top stories this week was about the McDonald's McRib. It's apparently making a comeback. <laughs> if you grow up loving food that is not healthy and that might not really be food, you'll become unhealthy. We become like what we love. If you love a news source that is thoughtful and, and provides a range of viewpoints and, and understands how people can differ with one another without that necessarily creating division, you'll probably become that kind of thoughtful person. If your favorite source of news is divisive and full of paranoia and unkind to anybody who holds a viewpoint other than the one that they endorse, well, don't be surprised if you become like what you love. The point really isn't about news or sandwiches pretending to be barbecue or Halloween candy. It's about the human heart. And it's this truth that lies behind God's calling to Zephaniah. God says, Zephaniah, the nations are worshiping idols, false gods that are in reality just a celebration of their own power, their own resources. When you worship statues that you have fashioned out of silver and gold, it feeds pride and division and injustice and hatred. And Zephaniah, my people, think that they are immune 
but they are doing the same thing. All nations, including my own people, are becoming like what they love and it is bringing, it is not bringing life into my good world. So Zephaniah, warn them that the day of the Lord will come. A day when I will break into human history for a final reckoning. This is one of the themes of many of the prophetic books, and it shows up a lot in the New Testament as well. And when Caleb read to us from Zephaniah chapter 1, you, you heard that emphasis. The great day of the Lord is near, says verse 14. It's near and hastening fast. It's bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. Even, even a strong soldier will weep out loud on a day like this because his might is no match for God's. A day of wrath and distress and anguish and ruin and devastation and darkness and gloom. Verse 16 says, a day of battle cry against the fortified cities. Which cities? Well, if, if you had been reading the first few verses of Zephaniah up to this point, you understand that, that this is God saying this day of the Lord is going to fall on Judah and all of its strong cities. This is for my own people. And yet in verses 17 and 18, the vision expands. I will bring distress on mankind, all of humanity. All the inhabitants of the earth. Why, God, why would you do this? Verse 17 says, Because they have sinned against the Lord. Here we have to stop and hear what God's word is actually telling us because the word sin can be defined in three very different ways depending on your view of the world. If you're a moralist, a legalist, if you follow human invented religions, then you tend to think, you think that sin is violating a list of rules, some of which are fairly arbitrary. And, and if you violate one of these rules, then you're losing points in the global religion competition. And if you grew up hearing that definition of sin, then you think God is going to come in this day of wrath and, and pursue people because they broke some silly list of rules? What kind of God is that? Well, good news, God isn't like that. And when he talks about sin, he's not talking about people who are violating a, an arbitrary list of rules. And he's not talking about coming to reward the people who are better at scoring points in a religion competition. That's one way to mishear the word sin. There's another way that uh, humanism, right? There are three, three basic religions in our world. One of them is moralism. The other is humanism. Humanism says, you know what? Sin presupposes that there's some standards by which human conduct could be evaluated and it presupposes that some human beings are evaluating the conduct of other human beings because on a humanist viewpoint 
there is nothing beyond this world. There is no supernatural. There is no God. Or if there is, we would have no way of knowing that God. So this whole concept of a God who reveals to us standards by which we could evaluate ourselves, evaluate one another, by which he would evaluate us, that's just an outdated concept. So the moment you hear Zephaniah saying, God is going to come the great day of the Lord because all humanity have sinned against the Lord, it just sounds like it doesn't even belong in our universe if you're a humanist. That's not what Scripture is talking about at all. When Scripture talks about sin, it is talking about something that's real, that's a part of us. Something we do. What is it? What sin will God be judging on this day of the Lord? Well, there's a, there's a hint in chapter 3, verse 11. God says, On that day I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. People who rejoice in ways that are arrogant. What might that look like? Well, if we read the rest of Zephaniah, we come across a great illustration of that in chapter 2, talking about the city of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, mighty world power. And what does she say in her heart? She says, I am and there is no one else. It's this attitude that says, God can't tell me how to live. Nobody gets to tell me how to live. God can't tell me who to love. Nobody tells me who to love. I don't need a God. I can get by just fine. I am all that I need. When Scripture talks about sin, it's talking about that. That tendency toward autonomy that says, I get to decide how I want to treat you. And if I want to treat you in ways that are kind and loving because it's going to be good for me, I'll do that. But if I decide that kindness and love just aren't working for me, I'm going to treat you some other way, and it's okay. I am, and there is no other. There's no God out there to hold me accountable. There's nobody out there to make me change. When Scripture talks about sin, it's not talking about rules in a silly religion competition, and it's not talking about outmoded standards made up by human beings to evaluate one another with no truth behind them. It's talking about the reality that this is how people are. And that gets expressed in some very practical ways. Chapter 1, verse 18 says this. On the day of the Lord, when I come into human history for a final reckoning against people who have sinned against me in this way, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. Silver and gold, symbols of what we are able to earn. Silver and gold, symbols of what we are able to own. 
symbols of prosperity that we have mined out of the ground with our own hands and shaped and formed into coins or into beautiful ornaments and jewelry or sometimes even into statues to worship. Symbols that I am and there is nobody else. We become like what we love. I earn and there is no one else. I own and there is no one else. I am prospering, so why would I care if someone else isn't? If we love what we earn and we love what we own and we love our prosperity above all else, if we love our silver and gold, we will become like what we love. We will hate those who have less than we do. If we love owning much, we will begin to think that the only people worth our attention are those who own much. And if we own much, we will begin to hate people who own more because we will assume that what they have really doesn't, well, they don't deserve it. I do. We become like what we love. God wants to fill his good world with life, and so he has to root out our love for idols. He has to root out this sense that I am, and there is no other. In order for the world to be filled with life and goodness, the day of the Lord has to come to root those things out of our hearts and out of our world. This is a sobering vision. It's not the only thing that God had for the world through Zephaniah. Zephaniah, tell my people, Warn them that the day of the Lord will come. It must come. But Zephaniah, tell my people, tell the nations that if they return to me. Well, here's the promise from chapter 2. If they return to me, then they can be hidden on that day of anger and wrath. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, and perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Zephaniah, tell my people, I will make a safe place for them to take refuge when I come to root out all of this arrogant love of self, all of this love of what we can own, what we can earn, what we can possess. When I come to root all of that out, there will be a safe place on that day. So Zephaniah promised them that the day of the Lord will come, a day when I will break into human history with perfect life and perfect love for all who have hidden in me. And that's the vision you get in chapter 3. Changed hearts. At that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord. Does this mean that, that God wants everybody to speak Hebrew in the end? No. No. What is speech being used for here? It's being used to call on the name of the Lord. Impure speech would be calling on another God. Calling on 
that statue of silver or gold, calling on that sense that what we own or what we earn will keep us safe. Pure speech, calling on the name of the Lord. I will do that for all the peoples. What, Lord, not just for your people? Aren't, don't you love your people? Yeah, I do. But guess what? I'm going to make people from every nation part of my people. Listen to the vision of verse 10. From beyond the rivers of Cush. Well, that helps. I don't know where Cush is. That's an ancient name for Ethiopia. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, if you look at a map, right, here's, here's Africa. And uh, God's people are up here. And they have in common, as Middle Eastern nations, they, they have culture and language in common with all the people who live over here. If you go west or east and you go a little bit north, then, then you're, you're, God would be talking about people who have something culturally in common with those who live in Judah and Jerusalem. But he raises up Zephaniah, whose father was Ethiopian, and says, hey, when I break into history, guess what? I'm going to bring into my people. I'm going to bring into the life and goodness that I want to flourish in this world. People from beyond the place that in your mind is most culturally remote and removed from you. Well, there are two major rivers in ancient Cush. There's the Blue Nile River and the White Nile River that come together to form the, the Nile River. And so when God says, I want you thinking beyond the rivers of Cush, I'm going to draw my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed people, will come from those lands, from Sudan and South Sudan, from Uganda, from South Africa, from Central Africa. God is saying, I want my people to see my heart is for the whole world and, and not just for your neighbors to the east that share a lot of your culture and language, but from neighbors that are so far removed from you, their culture, their language, their history, even their skin color. And I will call those worshipers my daughter. Zephaniah promised them that I will change the hearts of people from all over the world. Promise them that the day of the Lord will come. And on that day, verse 11 says of chapter 3, you will not be put to shame. The deeds by which you rebelled against me will be gone, forgiven pardoned forever and what will the result be once God does this kind of work to change the hearts of people from all over the world once he provides this safe place for people to hide on the day of his anger and judgment what will the result be it will be humility verse 12 I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord they'll say I'm not strong enough to stand they'll say I've worshipped my gold and silver 
they'll say, I've been one of those who had no interest in knowing my African neighbors. I've had no interest in knowing anyone other than myself. I need a safe place to hide from my own misplaced loves. And here is my confession. God is and there is no one else. I will take refuge in him. And then God paints this beautiful picture of a world in which justice and peace flourish. They shall do no injustice. They won't speak any lies. They will graze and lie down and no one shall make them afraid. Zephaniah, tell my people this. Tell the nations this. Zephaniah did. Did it make a difference? Well, God used Zephaniah's message to raise up a new leader, a king named Josiah. And if you read his story, you, you read that Josiah led the people of Judah into a season of repentance, seeking justice, humility before God, confessing before God that we're not immune we're not immune to becoming proudly arrogant people. Lord, forgive us. Josiah was a great king under which this, this kind of renewal movement in Judah flourished and it thrived for 30 whole years. 30 years. Five years after he died, the people had already turned back to where they were before. God used Zephaniah's preaching to raise up a new leader, and it made a huge difference, but not for very long. It seemed like God's promise had failed, but God raised up another leader, and the day of the Lord came. Jesus became like the one he loved. He loved God with his whole heart. And he became like the father he loved. He perfectly embodied wisdom and justice and mercy and kindness and compassion. Everything that God is, Jesus mirrored in his human life. The God-man. And then the day of the Lord came and in his crucifixion the day of God's wrath broke into human history it was a day of gloom and darkness it was a day in which all of this language from Zephaniah was fulfilled it was a day for Jesus of distress and anguish and ruin and devastation And God brought against Jesus the full fury of everything that my idol worship deserves. All the hardness of my heart had to be shattered. And if God had done that to me, I would not have survived the process. So he graciously did it to Jesus instead. The day of the Lord has come. And if you want to see what God's wrath and anger, if you want to see the full fury of hell released against a person, 
you study the death of Jesus because that was the day of the Lord falling on Jesus, creating the safe place for you and me to hide so that when the day of the Lord comes again at Jesus' return, it won't fall on any who have already taken refuge in him. And the day of the Lord came in the resurrection of Jesus as a day of life-giving beauty. A, a day in which we, we see the promise that this is what a fully redeemed human life can look like. This is what can happen when all the fullness of God's promises are completely experienced by a person living on this planet. Absolute, full health and body. Resurrection life. A body that cannot be broken, that cannot decay, that cannot be diseased or sick. If Jesus came in the room right now, he would not be wearing a mask. Why? Because he's got a bone to pick with the government or because he doesn't trust the CDC? No, because he would not be affected by the coronavirus, right? It's why he could walk up to a leper and touch them, and the result was two people who didn't have leprosy. <laughs> that kind of life. And it pervades not only bodies, but in resurrection glory, it pervades every part of our heart. And that's why God can paint this picture of saying, on that day, there won't be any more injustice. There won't be any more lying. There won't be any more arrogance. It will be a people filled with humility. And how do we know that that will happen when Jesus comes again? Because it already happened to Jesus. The day of the Lord has already come on Jesus. It came in all of its wrath and anger and his crucifixion and all of its life-giving glory and his resurrection. And when Jesus returns, the day of the Lord will come again with him. And so God says, Zephaniah, tell my people, I will raise up a leader who will be their hiding place on that great day. And Zephaniah, tell my people, it is never too late to take refuge in him. God in heaven, some of us in this room have taken refuge in Jesus, but we have forgotten how sweet it is to have a safe place in him. Open our hearts, restore our joy. Some of us in this room have taken refuge in Jesus, but there is a voice whispering to us that we cannot be safe because we have done too many wrong things and the work of Jesus is only so powerful and it's powerful enough to save others, but not us. Restore our trust in Jesus. Our sin is great, but his grace is greater. Restore our joy, Father. Father, some of us in this room, some of us hearing this recorded, Lord, we haven't taken refuge in Jesus. We've taken refuge in what we earn or what we own. We've taken refuge 
in our own pride. Thank you for calling us to take refuge in Jesus. May we do it with our whole heart, our whole self, for all of life. We pray in his name. Amen.